This is the Context Matters Podcast, and I am your host, Cindy Parker. I am an educator, explorer, writer, and speaker. I enjoy gathering around the table with interesting people who have different life experiences from me and then talk about God, Bible, theology, and other tangentially related subjects. We spent the last two weeks talking about creation, evolution, and if the Exodus event was historical. But before we head into the conquest narratives of Joshua and Judges, I want to camp out a little bit in Exodus, but with a different set of questions, including one about identity. A significant part of the Exodus story is that the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, but then entered into a covenant with God. Their identity changed, and thus how they behaved was also supposed to change. My guest here around the podcast table to take us through the Israelite identity change is Dr. Carmen Imes. She is an associate professor of Old Testament at Biola, and she is the host of a weekly video series called Torah Tuesdays, which provides short, interesting nuggets from the Torah. You can find her on YouTube. I'll also add a link for you in the episode notes. She had an extremely busy summer, including moving from Canada to Southern California to start a new job. Somehow she found time to talk with me about her book, Bearing God's Name. But before we talk about how the Israelite identity was shaped, we talked about how her identity as an Old Testament scholar was shaped, starting with her growing up years. So I grew up in Denver, Colorado. And our community growing up was not at all diverse. So I grew up in going to a Christian school that was mostly Dutch Reformed background. And I attended a Christian Reformed church. And all of my extended family members lived within a mile of my house. We all went to the same church. All the, all the Me and my cousins all went to the same school. And so it was a very small world in terms of my sense of network or connections, Almost everyone I knew was of Dutch descent, and although I didn't speak Dutch, my parents are not directly from Holland. We, I grew up in in a community with that was very mono ethnic, and and yet with a really solid view of scripture, like a high view of scripture. The Christian Reformed Church that we attended was very serious about reading the Old and New Testaments and preaching texts that maybe are unpopular. We sang our our hymnal included a a hymn or a psalm, like every psalm was set to music. So the first 150 songs in the hymnal were a song for each psalm. And so we would sing songs that you wouldn't find in the typical evangelical church. So I'm sure that formed me because as a child, I was already really fascinated by the Old Testament and I really liked it and had a... I would say in terms of biblical literacy, I was infused with biblical stories in a really robust way, not just the sort of disconnected way that that many people experience it in Sunday school. But when I was in junior high, we went through a really hard time as a family and ended up leaving that church and going to a, what I would call wildly charismatic church. And it was like a night and day difference in terms of <laughs> church experience. And there we just discovered oh, there's a Holy Spirit and there's 
freedom and, and there's deeply loving community and people who would just like drop everything and come help you in the middle of the night or just leave what they're doing and come pray for you. And so we experience kind of a different side of Christianity in that context where the Bible, all of that solid foundation that I had from the CRC church then was infused with Holy Spirit, missional, uh, loving community. And so I, I don't know, like, I probably, I don't know of anybody who would script their childhood the way mine worked out, but I feel like I kind of got the best of both worlds in terms of experiencing scripture and experiencing the move of the spirit. And since then, I've been in lots and lots of different denominations because my husband and I have moved quite a bit for mission work and for school. And so I've, I feel like I see a piece of myself and my childhood in all the different kinds of churches that we've explored together. It's so interesting as you were talking about that. I I just kept thinking it's it's almost too bad those two types of churches you talked about, the wildly charismatic and then mm-hmm. the Christian Reformed Church. It pains me that those are two separate types mm-hmm. of churches. You yes. know, I I am always leaning towards getting better Bible literacy and churches yes. and yes. the Holy Spirit and yes. remembering that there's movement and joy mm-hmm. and love and community that's mm-hmm. all supposed to be there, but also pensive theology and taking it seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that you shared it in those two different ways. At some point, let's blend them, right? Let's yes, exactly. Find I've a been, church I feel that like can I've blend. I've been looking for that all my life, um, looking yeah. for something that can hold a, a high view of scripture and reading it well, together with a vibrant experience of community and worship. The other thread that I might pull out from my childhood in terms of context is I mentioned that my early childhood was very monoethnic. Like everyone I knew was Dutch except for some neighbors. At the same time, I grew up with a passionate desire to be a missionary overseas and a, a deep sense of calling. And I was really attracted to other cultures and languages. Like if i found something like a candy wrapper that had more than just English on it. If it had the list of ingredients in German and in Spanish, like I would study it. I would like read it and try to figure it out. I was really fascinated by languages and I would gravitate towards people of other cultures. And so I went on my first mission trip when I was 14 to Venezuela. And then at 15, I was in Panama and I took Spanish all through high school. And I And I would have told you that my goal in life was to be a Bible translator in a jungle tribe somewhere in the Amazon. Like that's where I really thought I was going to end up. And so it's odd in some ways that I've ended up spending so many years in North America. We were missionaries in the Philippines for a few years, but yeah, this Sunday, I'm actually doing my first seminar in Spanish. (gasps) Oh. Which is really exciting. I don't speak Spanish well enough to do it, but I I wrote the talk and someone translated it for me. And rather than working with a translator live, I just said, how about I read this in Spanish instead? So for the first time in my life, I'm going to get to use Spanish for the the reason why I learned it. (laughs) So that's pretty exciting. That is really wonderful. You said that you loved the Old Testament even mm-hmm. from your CRC days. What was it as a kid that drew you towards the Old Testament? Why was that the gravitational pull? 
I am not sure that I can fully explain it, but I will say I remember loving the book of Isaiah, like when I was in high school. And what I loved about it was that the prophet was so passionate. And so I think what I saw was his willingness to go against culture and speak out and say bold things that needed to be heard, like willing to willing to talk about stuff that really mattered and call people back to faithfulness. And I think there was a, a bit of a young prophet in me that that could identify with it. I was going to a Christian school, but a lot of my classmates, most of my classmates didn't seem to take their faith very seriously. And I just felt passionately like we've got to make a difference in the world. And so I think I, I felt a sense of camaraderie maybe with the prophet Isaiah and the, the beauty of the metaphors that he used and just the power of his language. So that's the, the first clear memory I have. I remember just being interested in the stories and how they all connected and doing a Bible read through starting in second grade. Like I, I was, was like, I've got, I want to read this whole book. And so I started in second grade and finished in fourth grade. It (laughs) took me a while, but I made it through. And I'm sure there was so much that went right over my head. (laughs) Well, some of the tricky laws, perhaps, Yes, (laughs) which we are going to get to towards the end of this conversation. (laughs) So if you like the early memories of the prophet Isaiah, yet you wrote your PhD dissertation on the book of Exodus. I did. What, how did you end up landing in the Pentateuch instead of in the writings of the prophets? Yeah, I thought I would end up in the prophets because I really have always loved the prophets. And then in seminary, I discovered how much I love Hebrew poetry and how it works in Hebrew. And so it really would have been a great place for me to land. But I wanted to study at Wheaton College with Daniel Block. And the way to get in to the program at Wheaton is to land on a topic that you and your supervisor are both excited about. And so you have to apply with a topic in mind. And so just in the process of talking with him about potential topics, I think I floated some prophets ideas, but he, that wasn't his specialty. Well, he's, he is a, an expert on Ezekiel, but my ideas were in Isaiah, which is more of Richard Schultz's department there. And so at some point in our conversation, I had this wild idea to ask him, you know, you're nearing retirement. What are the topics you still think need to be done? I just felt like he was in a better position to know what should be studied than I was coming out of seminar seminary with small kids and not feeling particularly well-connected or well-read. And he was gracious enough to send me a list of the topics he thought were just really important that needed to be done. And one of them was about the command not to take the Lord's name in vain, which he said had been persistently and terribly misunderstood for most of church history. And when he presented to me what he thought it meant, I just thought that is amazing. It's an amazing topic. It's amazing because it's missional. It sort of connected my love for the Old Testament with my love for for mission and and being part of what God is doing around the world. And so I landed on the topic so that I could work with him and I don't regret it. It's been a really wonderful journey. I saw one of the talks that you've done where you talk about listing out all the different translations, all the different ways Mm -hmm. that Exodus 20, is it verse seven? Yep. Something early in 20. Yep. 20 verse seven. (laughs) Um, Okay, great. That is the, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Yeah. 
as often quoted and how all of them get it wrong, except maybe one translation. So I would say that probably sounds the most familiar to most people. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain, which is what we were always told in youth group, which is why we were never allowed to swear. Right. But you take a completely different hard turn away from that into something that is way more beautiful. Hmm. So is there a way you can just kind of... Yeah. Capture so, that and then we'll dig into it a little bit. So let me first say that I don't advocate swearing, but I just don't think that that's <laughs> what this command is about. Um, okay, fair enough. <laughs> people are like, oh yeah, so it doesn't matter what I say. No, it matters what we say, but I, I think the command is much broader than that. So yes, I list in my dissertation, I list 23 different interpretations that I found and all of them are trying to make sense of what sounds kind of odd in Hebrew. So to, if we translated it woodenly, it would be, you shall not lift up or carry or bear the name of Yahweh, your God in vain. And I think translators come to this and they think that doesn't make sense. We don't carry names. So this must be a figure of speech for something else. And so then they try to find other passages that might fill in what this figure of speech means, or they they suppose that something kind of dropped out of the sentence. So maybe it's, you shall not lift up your hand to the name. And that would be to swear an oath, or you shall not lift up the name on your lips. That is, you shall not say it. And I think they're making a valiant effort, but I think the result is that it's constraining what is meant to be much broader. We don't have to look very far in the literary context to find another example of the same phrase being used, the the carrying of names. In Exodus 28, the high priestly garments are described and, and prescribed how Moses is to make them. And the high priest is supposed to have on his chest this breast piece with the names of all 12 tribes inscribed on stones, precious stones. And it says, and so Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel before me. It's the same phrase, bearing names. And so what I try to do in my work is to show how Aaron is a visual model for what is true of the whole nation. Aaron represents all 12 tribes. And in a similar way, the people of Israel bear or carry God's name on them. It's an invisible tattoo that he's put on them. It's like branded them to say, you belong to me, you are mine. And so they represent him among the nations, just like Aaron represents them. And Aaron, of course, has on his forehead another name. He has a medallion that says, holy belonging to Yahweh. And that that sets him apart as the one that Yahweh chose or designated for this purpose of representing him to the people. And so I don't think it's a stretch to connect these two, because in Exodus 19, God tells the people of Israel, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So he's already set them apart as holy and as a kingdom of priests. So I don't think it's a stretch for us to look at the Israel's priesthood to see, okay, what does it mean to be a priest? And we see Aaron bearing names as a way of representing. So so my reading of the command, which as I've already said, I got from Daniel Block. It wasn't original to me. I just did the hard work of of trying to demonstrate that it works exegetically and contextually. I I believe that the command is saying, basically, you are my people. You belong to me. So now don't live in a way that violates 
that identity or vocation. Don't represent me poorly among the nations. Mm. So that would be much broader than how we say the name or whether we swear or whether we're taking an oath and not keeping it with his name. All of those things would fall under the umbrella, the wider umbrella of living as God's representatives. Yeah. And I really love that in the book that you have fairly recently, your modified dissertation to make Mm -hmm. it a lot more approachable to Mm -hmm. a wider audience is called Bearing God's Name. So it has Mm -hmm. a lot to do with this. And I I really love how you bring in the book of Deuteronomy because I'm a huge fan of Mm -hmm. the Deuteronomy. But Deuteronomy, that's their big point in Deuteronomy is Mm -hmm. you are put in the middle of the crossroads of the known world in a Mm -hmm. land that will never allow you to be an empire, Mm. but everyone is going to walk through your land. Mm. And so you are there as an example to everyone of who God is. And so as I was reading through your book, I'm like, see, you're pulling (laughs) together Exodus and Deuteronomy in a Mm -hmm. way we don't talk about. Mm-hmm. the Sinai yeah. laws and covenant at all, yeah. but it's just so beautiful. Laws are not usually what we gravitate towards when we want to be inspired. That's right. not like our typical go-to for morning devotions, right? But right. I truly <laughs> believe that the law is a part of mission. The law, the Old Testament law is not there as a means for Israel to be saved. God already saves them from Egypt. He already rescues them and liberates them before he gives them the law. And the law is a way for them to express that freedom and their new identity as the people who belong to him. They don't belong to Pharaoh anymore. They belong to Yahweh. And here's how they can live to show that to to a watching world. Yeah. And and therefore there's a real strong ethical component to it. And if, if, God's people are going to reflect God. They have to take on his characteristics, which Mm -hmm. is doing things like setting the slaves free, providing for the poor, you know, all these really beautiful, like it's a, it's a good motivation to be ethically minded in Mm -hmm. action, living out loud. Yeah. As it says repeatedly in Leviticus, be holy for I, the Lord, your God am holy. Like their, their lifestyle was constrained in these ways, not just arbitrarily, but so that they would demonstrate the character of God to those who are watching. So this brings us to the subtitle of your book, which I really like and might take people by surprise. So it says, Why Sinai Still Matters. And again, like you're kind of already dipping your toes in Mm -hmm. explaining that, but why does Sinai matter for the modern day church Mm -hmm. in our modern context now. I mean, Sinai is just so far away geographically and time, the timeline is just so far away. So how can it be a modern applicable thing? Yeah. So if we correctly understand the law as the expression of Israel's mission to represent God among the nations, then it's not as easy for us as Christians to dismiss it. If we think of the law as a means of earning salvation, then of course we don't need that anymore. We have Jesus. But if the law is a way of expressing what God has already done and living into our new identity and vocation, then we have to think more deeply about what is our relationship to the Israelite covenant at Sinai. Do we, are we part of this covenant? 
And so for me, the most compelling case can be made for seeing us as having been incorporated into that covenant. And there's two passages that are really big for me when I think about this. The first is in Acts chapter 15, when the Mm. early church leaders meet. Let me get rid of this. Sure. So in Acts 15, the leaders of the early church meet together because they have a conundrum. There are Gentiles who want to follow Jesus, and the big debate is over whether the Gentiles are allowed to follow Jesus as Gentiles, or do they have to convert to Judaism first? And so this is the, this is the big debate that's happening in Acts 15, and Peter comes as a, as a primary witness. He has the, the first argument to offer, and he says, hey, I was preaching to Gentiles, and the Spirit of God fell on them. And in, in an, from a Jewish mindset, the Spirit, the presence of the Spirit indicates membership in the covenant. And so when the prophets talk about the pouring out of the Spirit, it's always in a context of covenant renewal. So if the Gentiles mm-hmm. already have the Spirit, then to Peter, it seems obvious they're already covenant members. And he doesn't really understand why or how this is happening. He thought they'd need to convert first, but here the spirit is like this outside witness, this divine stamp of approval on Gentile followers of Jesus as Gentiles. And then James stands up and he offers Old Testament justification for this idea that Gentiles could follow Jesus as Gentiles and be covenant members. He says, Um, And he specifically uses name language as he talks about this. So I'm in Acts 15, 13. James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, or Peter, has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. So these people who have the spirit are the people for his name. That is the people on whom God placed his name. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. And then he quotes from Amos chapter nine. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. So the talking about the Davidic dynasty, it's ruins. I will rebuild and I will restore it. So this is like when Israel went into exile, it was the end of the Davidic dynasty. We no longer have a king in the line from the line of David on the throne. And God's saying he's going to restore that, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, which has got to be like a mic drop moment because the (laughs) Gentiles don't bear the name. It's the Israelites. It's the Jews who bear the name of God. And that happens at Sinai when he places his name on them to claim them as his own. So here James is pointing to the witness of the prophets to say, there are Gentiles who bear God's name, and we're meeting them now. Look, they have the spirit of God. The spirit has Mm. fallen on them. And so they determine that the Gentiles don't have to convert to Judaism, but that they can follow Jesus as Gentiles and be covenant members. So that's my first clue, like, oh, I, as a non-Jew, get to be in on this. But then my my other favorite passage that I think really makes the case is in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Now, Peter does not stop to make his case in Peter for why he would be talking like this, um, but I don't think he needs to because he was there in Acts 15, and it's the results of the council are well known. 
there are Gentiles who bear God's name. So Peter, I would argue that he's writing in his letter to a mixed audience of Jews and Gentiles who follow Jesus. And they're scattered throughout Asia Minor. And he's talking to them about how to be the church. And he says in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, but you are a chosen people, which is bizarre because they're not. He's already said they're exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Like the, these are people <laughs> scattered, like they're not unified. They're not even all the same ethnicity. But he says you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. He, he, he slaps on them the wow. titles yeah. that came right from Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Right. And he does it without explanation. He doesn't, he doesn't justify it, but I think mm. Acts 15 makes that justification. So for Peter, if you follow Jesus, you are a member of the covenant, whether Jewish or Gentile. And this is why for me, Sinai still matters because this means that Gentile believers in Jesus have been incorporated into that same covenant, which means the identity and vocation that Israel receives at Sinai is our identity and vocation. And therefore, we need to think about how are we representing God among the nations? Ah, it's just so good, right? And just wait until next week when we talk about how to interpret challenging laws in the Torah, like some of the agrarian laws for those of us who no longer live agrarian-focused lives, or slavery laws. Why are there laws about how to treat slaves instead of simply stating, don't do it? Thank you for being here. And thanks to people like Elizabeth and Todd Sion and Natalie and Doug McGee. They are part of my brilliant team on Patreon. They're a huge support to me, but they are also the ones who make this podcast sustainable. If you want to help support the podcast and get special things like spices from Israel or first copies of articles I'm writing, you can join the team. The link is in the episode notes. But you can also simply post a link on your social media pages and invite friends and family to join us all at the podcast table. I produced and edited this podcast Peter Lordson of Sycamore Sound created the music, and Luke Bronner of Milieu Media Group did the final mix. I look forward to our conversation next week. Until then, be safe, take care of each other, and stay curious about the world around you. Music